the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Welcome to another week of the Country Hour where we'll ask if there's going to be a duck season in 2023. There's been a raft of interesting comments and also campaigning going on and this is the week. If we look back 12 months when the state government announced the season last year and it's been an interesting time in terms of debate. We'll go through all of those things that are on the table for you today on the program. Plus, a change by the CSIRO on research priorities for wine grape vines might leave some resistant varieties to downy mildew on the back burner. We'll get information on that today. All of us in, in the Adelaide group were pretty shocked. Um, we were in the middle of what we thought was a rather successful research program. It was pretty disappointing. The researcher behind that work for downy mildew-resistant grapevines will tell you what he thinks is happening today on the program. I'd love you to tell me what you think. 1300 to call. You can text as well, 0467 842 Let's get your daily dose of rural news, though. Angus Verley has that for you today. G'day, Angus. G'day, Was. Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe says the federal government must do more to fast-track visa applications to ease the workforce situation in agriculture. Speaking at the Hillwood Berry Farm in the state's north, Jeremy Rockliffe says the expansion of agriculture in the state is being held back by the slow rate of approving visa applications. He wants the federal government to do more. What we do need is more workforce and greater workforce capability. And that's where the federal government need to step up and ensure they do have the resources uh, to process those very important visa applications. I've written to the Prime Minister about this, reflecting uh, the concerns in and around uh, Tasmania uh, and the need for uh, more people to come into Tasmania to contribute to our economy and to support very important businesses. Uh, We don't want uh, the lack of workers to be the bottleneck on Tasmania's success. There have been new detections of the deadly Varroa destructor mite in beehives at two locations on the New South Wales mid-north coast, linked to the illegal movement of beehives. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries says both detection sites at Taree and nearby Werrell Flat were linked to known properties in current eradication zones in the Hunter region. It says interviews with beekeepers in the restricted zones near Millfield and Wyong revealed the recent movement of hives from those sites into the Taree area. Steve Fuller, New South Wales Apris Association president, says it's a big setback for the industry. Well, this is we, we, we had it really under control. It's, uh, it's the last thing we want to see. It's put a spanner in the works in a big way. We didn't need this. We've been doing so well. There's been so much work and effort put into it. It's really sad to see something like this happen. It's really uh, pushing the industry backwards. The discovery of a rare pest in a Harvey Bay garden has sparked concerns for growers on farm and even the humble veggie patch. Guava root, not nematode, is a nasty microscopic worm that can affect the roots of many types of vegetables and cause significant crop losses. And the find has gardeners and farmers on high alert. Chairman of Australian Sweet Potato Growers, Troy Pritchard, says the nematode was first found in the Northern Territory in September and then Northern Queensland in December last year, 
but the new case in Harvey Bay has him concerned about its spread. Definitely concerned. The fact that it came from a domestic area, so it could easily be coming. It could easily be in Bundaberg already in domestic sites. So we we don't really know, and we definitely encourage all farmers if they do suspect that they have an issue to definitely report it and get tested, and also to double down on their biosecurity plans. So just ensure that there's clean material coming in, no no unnecessary soil coming onto their property. Maintain diligence with employees, make sure the shoes are clean and just try to prevent bread. The longer we can keep it out, the better. A dairy analyst is warning that Australia will be importing more dairy products in the short term because it doesn't produce enough milk to fill the market. Dairy analyst from Fresh Agenda, Joe Bills, says as Australian milk production continues to contract, processors will be paying high prices and will have to chase high-value products. That means Australian shoppers might see more imports in cheaper dairy categories. We already import quite a bit of cheese, um, but we, we, we will be importing more lower-value cheese, like the mozzarella cheese that you might get on your pizza, and some of the, the milk powders that um, we just don't have the milk for uh, in this country. We are structurally short of butterfat, so those kind of products, those more commodity-based products, we'll be importing and trying to make value-added products to sell either here or overseas. So we, we do have good demand for these products, but we just don't have as much of them produced as we'd like. The amount of wool going through auction houses is at its highest level in more than a decade. Wool markets fell 26 cents per kilogram last week, but much of that is being put down to the huge number of bales going up for sale. Jenny Turner from Fox & Lily says more than 110,000 bales half a sale between last week and this one. Post-flood, um, post-summer, the uh, arrivals of wool into store from growers is at an all-time high. So the testing centres are, are very, very full. Uh, this week, there's just over 57,000 bales on offer. Um, and the, combined with last week, that's the most bales on offer in any one fortnight for 12 years. So it, it, it is significant. Was that's it for Rural News. Yeah, significant finish there, Angus. Thank you very much for that. Certainly one to keep an eye on with the wool market with so much wool coming through. And as we've heard from last week on the program with a high amount of sheep in the country for, well, the highest amount since 2007, there's probably a lot more to come. We'll have to keep an eye on it for you. You can send us a text if you have thoughts, 0467 842 722. You might want to keep that number handy because... We're going to talk duck hunting now. The future of duck hunting in Victoria is hanging in the balance as the wait continues for an announcement of the 2023 season. Jane McNaughton reports. In a typical year, keen shooters would, by now, have a clear outline of the year's duck season with timelines and bag limits announced. That hasn't happened yet, and the Premier, Daniel Andrews, was asked recently at a press conference why. Well, I've asked for some further updates, uh, and that'll be a matter for my department to... Uh, both speak with the Game Management Authority as well as their their uh, department also. Uh, I know that there is some data out there at the moment, but it's an update that I want, uh, and uh, we'll wait and see what those figures say. Uh, but again, uh, the declaration of a season is not a matter uh, that the whole of Cabinet talks about. It's not a matter that I make a decision on. It's a matter for the Minister. The Minister, Kilkenny, takes her responsibilities very seriously. Uh, so uh, we will... Uh, have more to say about that. The Minister will have more to say about that at the appropriate time. 
But there are rules and the rules should be followed by everybody. Pressure is mounting on the Victorian government to outlaw recreational duck hunting in line with the ACT, New South Wales, Queensland and Western Australia, which have all banned it. And questions continue to rise around if this year's season will go ahead. Both the Victorian government and the Game Management Authority refused to answer several questions put to them by the ABC. Only issuing a statement reading a decision on the duck season will be made by government in due course after thorough consideration. The change in government rhetoric on duck hunting is being noticed. The ABC's state political reporter Richard Willingham recently wrote, wrote a piece that this year feels a little different as the wait for the duck season to be called continues. And that wait to find out is frustrating proponents of duck hunting like CEO of Field and Game Australia, Lucas Cook. So the, the aim would be that, yes, the government should have made an announcement by now. Last year, an announcement wasn't made until the 26th of February. Uh, so we're, we're not quite as late as last year. But uh, look, the, the current Labor government did commit under the Sustainable Hunting Action Plan some years ago to a process that was going to deliver more timely season announcements. And we certainly haven't seen them deliver on that commitment. The campaign against duck hunting has been stepping up in recent weeks too. The latest group to call for its end is the Australian Veterinary Association. The peak veterinary body says 33% of hunted birds were wounded in shooting but not retrieved, resulting in crippling injuries such as wing, bill and leg fractures. AVA President Dr Bronwyn Orr says using shotguns to kill water birds is inhumane and results in many animals being critically injured and left to die in the wild. Shotguns by the very nature are designed to cause maximum impact by um, releasing uh, a number of small pellets um, and what happens is you know as ducks they fly off in a, in a flock um, you're not just hitting the particular duck targeting, you're often hitting those around them. That can result in a series of injuries um, and often it does result in death, but it can take you know days or weeks. Essentially, the most common uh, injuries we get are wing fractures. So, you know, as they're flying, they get pellets that go through their wings and bird bones are incredibly fragile. It doesn't take much to break them. And as you can imagine, a bird that can't fly properly because its wing is broken will eventually starve to death or die from predation. So wing fractures are the most common, but we also see pellets that enter the body and the body cavities. Birds have air sacs to help them fly as well as breathe. They often go in there and then they get infections. Um, we see injuries to the head, to the beak. There's all sorts of things. But yeah, certainly wing fractures are one of the most common and you know, it's a, it's a pretty long and, and horrible death for a bird to, you know, die from starvation or potentially predation. So unlike the sort of quick death from the birds that might get the pellet to the head or, or critical body part like the heart, um, those who get injured are often condemned to um, quite a bit of suffering before they eventually die. We've seen the evidence. Um, it's, it's quite clear that wounding is associated with shotgun use. So we just don't think that there's any way to justify the recreational hunting of waterfowl with shotguns. But those who argue for the practice say they won't give up without a fight. CEO of Field and Game Australia, Lucas Cook, says recreational duck hunting is a sustainable way to manage wetlands, the environment and care for the ducks. The arguments around the, what the actual figures are for wounding rates and if it's a problem as big as some organisations make out are just that, they're arguments. There's, there's no proven science in one way or the other. We're committed to reducing wounding because we think that's a good outcome regardless of what the rate of wounding might be. Uh, reducing it is always going to be a good thing. 
Over the past few years, there has been reduced bagging limits and a reduction in the time frame as well that recreational duck season uh, goes for. Did you support that or do you think that that was a move in the wrong direction by the government? So the, the science is, is equivocal that uh, duck season is sustainable, duck hunting is sustainable um, when it's legislated correctly and certainly reducing bag limits in dry years is a part of making sure duck hunting is sustainable. Again, we might argue over the, the uh, exact figures that are put out there still, but the, the science is clear. Duck hunting is sustainable and managing bag limits is the best way to do that. The science is also clear that, that reduced season lengths um, is not a good management tool. So we would argue and point out that, that recreational hunting is a good outcome for the management and care of wetlands, the environment and duck species. All eyes remain on Minister for Outdoor Recreation, Sonia Kilkenny, to make a call on whether there will be a duck hunting season in Victoria for 2023. ABC Rural has contacted the Minister's office, but they are yet to respond. We've also contacted the Game Management Authority that surveys duck numbers in the state, who wouldn't be interviewed, instead confirming it's the government that makes the decision on the season. So as we approach crunch time for duck season, the waiting game continues. That's Jane McNaughton with that report. What do you think? Do you think there will be a duck season in 2023 or are you noticing a change in rhetoric from uh, those that make the decision as well? I'd be interested in your views. You can send a text 0467 842 722 or call 1300 977 As Jane said, it is... The Minister for Outdoor Recreation, that's not the responsibility of the Minister for Agriculture. used to make this decision in the past. It's now the new Minister for Outdoor Recreation that makes the decision on the duck hunting season. So all eyes will be on Sonia Kilkenny, who now representing a government that made this decision on on the season for last year, around about this time. So we'll have to keep a close eye on the government in the coming week. 1309 is the number if you'd like to call. Malcolm from Wangaratta has called that number. G'day, Malcolm. Oh, thank you, Warwick. Um, I I suggest you consult the Treasurer because I've taken out a contract with the government as far as I'm concerned. I've got a game permit to shoot ducks... uh, and, and so, therefore, if, if, if you're given a licence to shoot ducks each year as a game permit and they take that away from you, well, I suggest they better refund all our game permits. It's a bit, it's a bit like uh, charging you a driver's licence to drive a car and then saying, no, 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 you can't drive a car anymore. You don't, you don't get a refund, though, if, uh, if you're not allowed to drive anymore and uh, if you've been fined or something like that, though, Malcolm. That would be yeah, that, akin to your example there. It's a blanket thing, though. If they say, Mm. "Okay, you're not allowed to shoot ducks," well, what about all the game permits that they've charged people so that they can go and they've paid money to shoot ducks, and then they say, "No, they can't." Well, then they should refund your game permit. It's as simple as that. So, Malcolm, just just on the issue itself too of a duck season for 2023, are you noticing a change, or do you think this is the same arguments you hear every year before an announcement is made? It's the same. It's the same saga. I, 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 I take heed of what these animal liberators say that it's cruel to shoot animals. Well, maybe they should have a look at the state government. They're shooting deer out of helicopters and horses out of helicopters in national parks, and not even going and checking on the animals. So maybe those animal liberators should get up there too and have a look. Oh, we'll find out, Malcolm. Thanks for your call. Thirteen hundred nine double seven. 
triple two on the talkback number there, looking at whether there will be a duck hunting season in 2023. We'll have to watch this space. wonder if you think there's been a change in terms of what you're hearing from political leaders, or what you're hearing from the government, because it's about this week we should know. Uh, whether there'll be a season or not. Meanwhile, let's talk about the future of important work to develop disease-resistant grapevines, which may be lost after the CSIRO decided to change direction on work in the area. For several years, researchers have been breeding downy mildew-resistant wine grape varieties, but the future of this work, as it's being tested in the field, remains uncertain, as the CSIRO has decided to shift its focus to gene editing, rather than traditional breeding approaches. Dr Ian Dry is a former research scientist at the CSIRO and he, he says the shift was announced mid-last year to staff. All of us in, in the Adelaide group were pretty shocked. Um, we were in the middle of what we thought was a rather successful research program and uh, we were uh, just about to start the evaluation of some of the new um, second-generation varieties which have improved, even better resistance than uh, some of the first-gen varieties that uh, we have in the field now. So it was pretty disappointing. Instead, the CSIRO is moving to an approach called gene editing, where the focus is on modifying existing wine grape varieties to make them less susceptible to downy and powdery mildew. Why do some people consider that more appealing than the approach that you were using? In terms of the breeding work that we were doing, uh, you have to consider that any of the new varieties that uh, you create, although they will have improved characteristics in terms of disease resistance, and in some cases we've introduced improved colour as well, um, you, you cannot use uh, existing variety names. Uh, every variety you make is a brand new variety and has to have a new name. And of course, the implications there from a marketing point of view are brand recognition. Uh, in Australia, we're very much focused on buying our wines based on on varietal names rather than on brands or or regions. And there are certain parts of the the Australian wine industry who feel very nervous or or are not convinced that uh, new varieties um, are going to be easily adopted. Um, With gene editing, gene editing gives you the opportunity of modifying existing varieties and essentially making clones of those varieties. So it should still have... Uh, exactly the same um, viticultural characteristics and sensory characteristics, but most importantly, uh, although this hasn't been, no one's actually made a gene-edited variety yet, and this is yet to be proven, uh, we believe it should be possible to use exactly the same name because it's essentially like a clone. Uh, and most people, well, some people might know that uh, of the of the famous varieties we use, uh, growers use different clones of those varieties. We're generally not aware of that. Are other wine grape growing countries developing disease resistant varieties and how are they doing that? Absolutely. In fact, um, uh, the French are well ahead of us in that, in that regard. They've had a breeding program and a very large investment for the last um, probably 20 years. Uh, they've already, uh, they're already testing in the field now in their different appellations in France what we would call second generation varieties. So these are varieties that have two resistance genes to powdery mildew and two resistance genes to downy mildew. And they're actually doing trials in the different appellations to find new varieties that might potentially replace the the classic French varieties. And I guess that might come to a shock as mo- to most people because we, we realise the French are very much wedded to their classic varieties, but they realise 
um, because of the implications of the continued use of fungicides uh, in, in their environment, that they, they will have to eventually move to new varieties, which are still good wine quality, but uh, reduce the, the inputs. Um, other countries, uh, Italy, have, got a, have had a breeding program for a long time. The US uh, are doing also breeding in this area. So it's, it's quite common for the classic sort of breeding work that we've been doing, uh, and new varieties are being evaluated and, and, and actually used in a number of different wine-growing countries. Gene editing, on the other hand, is, is very, very new. It hasn't yet been shown to be possible to, to use the technology to develop new disease-resistant varieties. It's only still in the experimental phase, and we're aware of a couple of laboratories in, in Italy who are the, um, uh, the leaders in this area, and we're in uh, CSIRO. We're just starting uh, this program in the Adelaide Lab to see if we can uh, also do it here in Australia with classic Australian varieties. So where does this leave that work that you're up to where you had these second-generation progeny that were going to be planted? Is, there, is it possible that another organisation could take on some of that work and see it through? Yes. Yeah, so the original work was actually a jointly funded research project between uh, Wine Australia, who is the Rural Research and Development Corporation for the wine industry, and CSRO. So that was a joint project. CSIRO have now moved away from that approach, but Wine Australia is still keen to see uh, the evaluation of these second-gen varieties go ahead. So in collaboration with New South Wales DPI, we are going to move the um, entire uh, second-gen uh, breeding population over to New South Wales and replant them and hope to do evaluation of these over the next um, five years to try and identify uh, the best lines that uh, could be used for commercial application. That's Dr Ian Dry, former research scientist at the CSIRO who was involved in developing disease-resistant wine grape varieties. The CSIRO was contacted for comment. If you're in the wine industry, I would be interested to hear what you make about this, doing away with traditional breeding approaches in wine for uh, disease resistance and now going to gene editing. Is that a good move? Is that going to produce wine that you think the market wants? Would love your thoughts. 0467 842 722 to text or you can indeed call 1300 977 2. Many of you wanting to have your say on duck hunting and whether there or not there will be a season this year or not because we're in this interesting week where really uh, the government will usually make its announcement. Well, used to be a lot beforehand, but last year was around this time. So that's why we're watching closely at the moment. I'll get to some of your texts soon, uh, but on 1300 Helen's called from the Macedon Rangers. Hi, Helen. Hi. Um, I've been a duck rescuer for the last 14 years, and what I see year after year after year compels me to go out again and again because... Um, so, least, so do you think there's going to be a season this year or not, Helen? Do you are you hearing a change I, in what the government's saying? I, I'm hoping to hear a change. Surely, surely, you know, duck shooters don't vote Labor; they vote for the shooters and fishers and One Nation. And and and, and Daniel Andrews has a, a you know a, a millennials problem, so he should be trying to harvest the votes of millennials who are very unimpressed with duck shooting. That's an interesting generalisation. Why do you think that way? Well, I watch shooter pages, duck shooting pages online, and they all vote for the Libnats, for the Shooters, Fishers, One Nation, UAP. 
they don't vote Labor, um, and they, you know, instead of chasing, you know, the votes of angry old men who yell at clouds, Daniel Andrews should be reflecting the wishes of the vast majority of Victorians who oppose duck shooting. If you went out there and saw what they did, like I've seen for the last 14 years, you would be demanding it was shut down straight away. So, so on that logic, though, Helen, I suppose if you're, if you're saying in terms of leadership and where the voters are, the vast majority of regional areas have voted for coalitions. That's basically the power base left for a coalition in, in Victorian Parliament. So should no, you give those areas what you want? Uh, um no, it's Victor, regional Victorians don't like duck shooting. So is this the city telling regional Victoria what to do? I live in regional Victoria and vast majority... Vast is there a difference between the Massenden Ranges and other areas of regional Victoria in your mind? Look, the vast number of rescuers that go out come from all over the state. It's not just a, a latte... And look, to be fair, duck hunters will tell you the same thing. They'll say, we come from Melbourne and so forth too. So I suppose yeah, these arguments can go both time. ways. Yeah. They, go from, they come from Deer Park and Melton and Sunshine and things. So these are cashed up bogans who blast, you know, if it flies, it dies is the motto, and they shoot anything. So will you go out again this year if a season is Ab- called, Helen? Absolutely. I will not be deterred until it stops because, well, what, you know, I'm a wildlife carer, and if I euthanise birds the way duck shooters do, and the hunter, you know, the GMA hunter survey of 2020 showed that only 13% of shooters knew how to humanely kill a wounded bird that they've downed. Helen, thank you very much for your call. Helen in the Massenden Ranges there on 1300 A lot of your texts there. We'll get to those in a moment. We've also got the weather on the way and uh, some more stories. The Australian Wool Innovation saying shearing is their number one priority, but what are they going to do about it? We'll hear from them shortly on the program. Right now, though, let's find out what's making regional news headlines. Alex Starling has those uh, headlines for us today from the regional newsroom. Good afternoon, Alex. Good afternoon, Warwick. Victoria's workplace safety regulator has charged a taxi company over the death of two wheelchair passengers. Echukamoama Taxi Group is now facing four charges of breaching the Occupational Health and Safety Act. WorkSafe alleges a 63-year-old woman died in February 2022 after her wheelchair tipped backwards while she was travelling in a taxi in Echuca. It also alleges a 75-year-old man was injured four months later in similar circumstances, dying the following week. The company will appear in court next Tuesday. The state government has given $35,000 to the brother of a Victorian boy who has been missing for more than 47 years to help complete the search for his remains. Terry Floyd was last seen on the side of the Pyrenees Highway between Avoca and Maryborough on the afternoon of June 28, 1975. He was 12 years old. His brother, Daryl Floyd, has been searching for him for years, and last year a dog squad search unit showed significant interest in a mine shaft near where Terry went missing. Darrell has previously said he believes this is where his brother's remains lie. In a statement, the spokesperson says the government supports Darrell's dedication and tireless efforts to search for his missing brother. Five regional Victorian neighbourhood houses will receive a share of $142,000 in state funding to replace flood-damaged infrastructure. In the east, Benalda's main shed will get cash for repair of electric motors for dust extractors, while in the northwest, Charlton will be able to rectify damage to its doors, walls, floors and furniture. Echuca, Rochester and Marupna are also getting support. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews today notches up 3,000 days leading the state, which makes him eligible for a bronze statue to immortalise his feet. 
Only four other premiers have reached that milestone, and if a statue does go ahead, Mr Andrews will join Henry Bolte, Albert Dunstan, Rupert Hamer and John Kane Jr. in bronze outside Melbourne state government offices. The Colac, and finally, the Colac Otway Shire may become the next council to raise a rainbow pride flag on May 17 this year in recognition of the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia. Councillors will vote on the matter at Wednesday this week. Colac remains one of only 11 council areas across Victoria never to have raised a pride flag. And Angus, that's the latest. Oh, well, you can call me Angus any time you want, Alex. That's a that's a compliment, Alex Darling there with regional news headlines. Uh we're going to go to the weather report shortly. Just some of your text messages coming in on the future of duck hunting. This one says if they go after duck shooting, why don't they go after fishing? Uh, another one saying, oh gosh, there's a lot here. Time for duck season to end. The world has moved on. Another one saying, unfortunately for country people, do-gooders in Metro Melbourne will see the duck season fall by the same sort as the timber industry and alpine cattle grazing did here in Gippsland. Ducks galore this year, says Adam in Hale, in Hazelwood. Um, this one saying there needs to be uh, just a season at least on wood ducks at least. That makes sense to me. They're pretty prolific and in high uh, numbers and a concern in high numbers, that should say. Uh, this one says people ask the people who shoot native ducks why they find it necessary to kill. Native ducks are not feral like deer and brumbies, which destroy the environment. And text after text coming in, I will go through some of those uh, again as we move on throughout the show. Right now, though, let's find out what's happening weather-wise around our state with Hannah Marsh, a senior forecaster on duty at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Hannah. Good afternoon, Warwick. How's it looking around Victoria today? Is this our last burst of hot weather? Well, it's a bit hard to say at this stage. Um, we did have some spots of low cloud and uh, fog around this morning. That has all cleared. There's just still a few spots of cloud about the coast. But this will continue to burn off as the day progresses. We're generally seeing mostly sunny conditions. Temperatures have been up to 32.8 degrees at Mildura, 31.6 at Wangaratta. We've been up to 26 so far at Ballarat, 22 uh, in the city and 22.5 at Warrnambool. And uh, having a look, we are really expecting temperatures to increase, but not quite yet, not on Tuesday, just in the northwest of the state. So we're looking at a mostly sunny 38 degrees for Mildura tomorrow, getting up to 30 degrees at Horsham, 27 for Bendigo, getting up to 34 degrees for Albury-Wodonga, but remaining around 22 degrees at Warrnambool and 24 degrees at Sale. Also tomorrow we'll see some uh, showers developing about Gippsland and also the central district just with some moisture feeding down through uh, from New South Wales. There is also the chance of seeing some possible isolated thunderstorms uh, in the far northeast of the state tomorrow but otherwise we're generally looking at mostly cloudy conditions in the south and uh, sunny conditions in the northeast. But it isn't really until Wednesday that we'll start seeing the temperatures increase as the winds start tending more northerly. Again, there is the chance of seeing some isolated shower and possible sunstorm activity over eastern and uh, central parts of the state. will most likely be during the afternoon. Otherwise, we're looking at cloudy conditions in the south and mostly sunny conditions in the north. 
Temperature-wise, uh, we're looking at 30 degrees for Melbourne on Wednesday, getting up to 37 degrees at Mildura, 35 degrees for Horsham, 32 degrees for Bendigo and also at Shepparton, getting up to 33 at Hamilton, 30 for Ballarat and 23 degrees for Sale. Then as we head into Thursday, we're looking at that shower and thunderstorm activity uh, remaining in the east and south of the ranges, uh, but we are looking at mainly being during the afternoon period. Again, looking at warm to hot temperatures with those freshening northerly winds, and we start seeing some uh, severe heatwave conditions starting to build from the west as we head into Wednesday and uh, extending further east on Thursday and Friday. Temperature-wise, we're generally looking around uh, 33 degrees for Melbourne, 38 degrees for Mildura, getting up to 32 degrees at Bendigo and 35 degrees for Warrnambool on Thursday. Then we do have a change that we're expecting to develop in the west of the state on Friday, extending through on Saturday, which will see uh, the return to mild to warm temperatures for the weekend. So it goes up and down a bit, really, this week, in, as opposed to the, the multiple days of hot weather that we had last week. Would that be fair enough to say, Hannah? It does. Uh, it is still a sub substantial amount of heat that we are seeing, um, particularly over a larger area of the state as well, and uh, with the peak of that heat on Thursday and Friday. So will there be heatwave warnings, you think, with that heat? Yeah, it is looking like we'll see severe heatwave conditions developing from the west, uh, reaching Melbourne as we head towards uh, the end of the week. And uh, as far as anything else warning-wise at the moment, should we be aware of anything else? Uh, we've just got strong wind warnings for tomorrow for Port Phillip Bay, uh, the West Coast, Central Coast, Central Gippsland and East Gippsland coasts. Uh, so that was coastal wind warnings. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And Amash, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking you through the full forecast there. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Many of you wanting to have your say on whether or not there'll be a duck hunting season this year in 2023. Uh, some of those texts coming in at the moment. Craig says, people don't have a problem in destroying a mouse in their home if it's in their wheat bix, yet we can't destroy ducks that eat our wheat crop for their wheat bix, says Craig. Uh, Wally says, ducks spread blue-green algae and foul up dams that livestock need to drink. Um, their numbers must be controlled. That's the thoughts of Wally coming in at the moment. Gwen in Woodend says, an abattoir wounded and released a third of the animals who entered its doors to die of their injuries. It would be shut down. Why are duck shooters allowed to get away with this, saying Gwen from Woodend. Uh, hang on, Helen. This uh, The state Labor primary vote was 35% and the federal Labor was 3% less than the Liberals. I think you need to stop generalising about voting parties and duck shooting. Uh, and it keeps going on. Pete says, fairly confident was that animal liberation groups that are opposed to shooting deer, brumbies, etc. But people like to hear what they want to hear. I don't have an opinion one way or another on duck hunting, but I'm always intrigued at how wound up people get about shooting sports. It concerns me that people who get so passionate about topics also have access to guns. The hunting community does itself no favours getting all angry about stuff. Cool heads are required, says Pete on the text line as well. Another Pete is on the line. Peter from Romsey, 1300 Welcome to the program. Yeah, g'day Warwick, how are you? I'm good. What did you want to say? 
Look, uh, I've been duck hunting for over 40 years, probably 50 years actually, and uh, I've seen these animal protesters, liberationists at first hand. I've seen them chase down birds, swans that are just, well, you know, just obviously, you know, they get a bit spooked when the guns go off, so they fly to places to get refuge. I've actually seen animal liberationists chase them down and catch them. But Peter, this them. isn't really a conversation about the, the wares or nods of duck hunting. I just want to know, do you think there'll be a season this year? That's that's the main bit of the chat. Do you think these debates are moving in a way where you, you'll lose your ability then to go duck hunting? Look, we probably... Look, I think inevitable we'll, we'll probably lose that right. I think this year... With the amount of water, and I'm, I'm a sales rep, I go all over the state, the amount of birds and ducks that have bred up, they've bred two or three times this year. So there's no, there's no argument to say that there's not enough around. The amount of damage that they do to crops and, and fields, you know, you've just got to talk to local farmers. But, um, so if you, you lose know, the right then to duck hunt, do you think it'll ever come back? No, well, what happens is, this is where people don't realise, Probably more ducks are shot in New South Wales than ever before there was a duck shooting because you can still get permits to shoot on the rice and still get permits to shoot on crops. So, you know, we can still... So it becomes an animal around. control thing rather than a recreational yeah. season. And, and, and that's why you have a sustainable duck season because you've got to control the numbers of these things. The government get a heap of money out of it through, through permits and, and, and hunters' licences and stuff like that. I mean, you know... Peter, that's... Tell some of these city people to go into the country and talk to farmers. Interesting to hear your views as well. Thank you very much for providing them, as do Helen and Malcolm as well, who have been on our talkback line as well today. Thank you for that. We've also got text from Bentley today. Uh, the reality, duck shooting is legalised cruelty, says Nat in Bentley. And one from Bayswater as well. Alyssa says duck shooting is unbelievably barbaric and I've witnessed incredible suffering on wetlands across the state as well. Thank you very much for your text coming in. Welcome aboard to the country hour. Great to have listeners from further afield to our program today. 1300 if you'd like to uh, give us a call uh, or you can text 0467 842 But we are going to move on for a moment and talk shearing right now because Australian Wool Innovation, which is the levy-funded uh, sheep Industry Organisation for Research and Marketing. It says it's investing heavily in developing alternatives to traditional shearing. Wool growers have been telling AWI that the shearer shortage is the biggest issue facing farmers right now. However, the grower-funded Research and Development Corporation says it's reluctant to reduce the spend on marketing to fund extra research. Jock Laurie is a wool grower from Walker and a chair of AWI. He's speaking here to our reporter, Josh Becker. We just know that um, from all the information that we're getting across Australia, not just in individual pockets, right from across Australia, that it is the number one problem that the industry is facing at the moment. When it comes to shearer retention, do you have any data on how long shearers are staying in the industry? Uh, look, I think that's varying. I know that some people have sort of been coming back into the game a bit, you know, in the, in the last while to try and ease the pressure. So some going out and some coming in. A lot of the new learner shearers we're getting into the sheds at the moment, we're retaining uh, fairly high rates of those, which I think is very important. And, and obviously the in-shed training and the other training that's going on sort of the novice area, is important too because that's helping upskill all of those people. So, look, I think there are very reasons for people coming in and going out of shearing um, and at varying ages too. It's really hard to know. We don't have any solid data, but you've only got to go into the sheds and talk to people to understand that 
you know, there are different reasons why people are staying in or different reasons why they're going out and um, different ages also. Have you discussed uh, visas with the federal government and whether there are options to get Pacific workers or South American workers as shearers or shed hands? Uh, look, this is where the the issue is, right? AWI is a research and development and extension company. So we can do work in modules, we can do work in training, we can do work in uh, chemical defleecing, biological defleecing, further work on that. We can do all of that sort of work. When it comes to the political area, the wool industry representative groups, that is their clear role. <clears throat> the wool industry representative groups really need to step into that space. We can do what we can do, uh, and we simply can't deal with the political or policy area because that is not AWI's role. You mentioned the uh, chemical defleecing or biological defleecing. Is there a time frame in mind that you have for when an alternative wool harvesting approach like that might be on the table? Uh, look, my time uh, frame is yesterday. Um, science and research doesn't necessarily follow my time frame or the industry time frame. What we have to do is invest um, as much as we possibly can in the areas that we need to. Uh, and don't be frightened to invest, um, especially when you're looking at providing a new tool and getting the researchers to understand how critically important it is that they work as quickly as they possibly can, develop what they possibly can as quickly as they can and get it in the commercial environment. Having said all of that, you know, there will be APVMA approvals and all sorts of things that they need to go through. And once again, that's where the wool industry representative groups need to be talking to make sure that... Uh, that those processes are, are quick, speedy, uh, and allow the opportunity, well, certainly allow everybody to understand how critically important this is to the industry at the moment and make sure that they can be actually put into the commercial environment. Are you working with any engineering companies that would look at taking the wool off the sheep um, that use these biological defleecing approaches? Right. Uh, so the first phase is that we've got to go through and continue the research to, to shore it up. First, to understand how they're the uh, protein could be administered to, make, administered to make sure that you can get a break in, in a consistent fashion. The second phase will be doing engineering or designing engineering that actually allows the police to be removed. And what we do know is that there are many um, people in the wool industry, wool growers themselves, who are very, very good inventors, have got some very good ideas. And I would say that working, and we've already discussed this, working with engineers to look at developing uh, ways of actually removing the police and then getting it either into a wool press or into a wool bin uh, without having a, a whole lot of handling. Um, you know, there's a lot of lot of work to be done there. Uh, and it's very clear in our mind that that will be done and that will be done fairly soon. And obviously trials to make sure that we can progress all of this stuff is also going to be critical. Does it uh, make you rethink whether to revisit the split between research and marketing from Australian wool innovation, putting more money into research to address this biggest issue at the moment for wool growers? Look, we've always been um, clear that the 60-40 uh, basis that we work on is a um, it's a very good indicator of where the company will be investing and it's sort of an agreed position within the industry and the government and everybody realise that's where we're going. So we don't need to have an argument around, around where that's going at the moment. But if there are areas where we need to invest because we can clearly show that it is absolutely critical, then we'd be We'd be talking to the industry to make sure that they're happy for us to, to go down that path. That is Jock Laurie, who is the Chair of Australian Wool Innovation, speaking there to Josh Becker about the importance of finding solutions to shearing for that industry at the moment. And as we've been reporting on the huge increase in sheep numbers in Australia over the last three years, will mean 
lot more sheep will be looking to get shorn very soon. We'll keep moving here on the Country Hour because I wanted to bring this story to you today too. Large corporate farming organisation GoFarm will sell off its Queen Garnet Orchard near Lake Charm to focus more on tomato growing and winter cropping. GoFarm purchased the 9,000 hectare property from Aware Super in the middle of last year and has recently completed the latest harvest of Queen Garnets which claim superfood status uh, because of their high antioxidant content. It's a type of plum, if you don't know, a bit like a blood plum, very tasty. Liam Lenigan is the Managing Director of GoFarm, though, and he says the orchard would be better off in the hands of a specialist stone fruit grower. Oh, it's all about um, simplifying the operation. We bought that portfolio mid last year, some 9,000 hectares, over 30 different properties with enterprises covering summer cropping, winter cropping, grazing, eco-services, stone fruit, uh, and the list goes on. And for us, um, it's about being excellent at a few things rather than mediocre at a lot of things. So it's just about simplifying the the business model and operations. Okay, so simplifying and looking at having a stronger focus on winter cropping? Twin focus or dual focus. We have renegotiated the supply agreement with Kagomi, um, the tomato supply agreement. We've extended the tenure to that and um, shored up that arrangement, which we're delighted with, along with Kagomi. And then, in addition to that, focusing on winter cropping, in particular canola and barley. How's your tomato crop gone this year? Um, Mixed fortunes, like everyone. A very wet, cold spring has had an impact and it's delayed planting in the most part. Um, We did suffer some area reduction due to the Loddon River uh, breaching its bank and levee, so we've lost about 100 hectares of planting out of 700. That is, we didn't plant that 100, so we didn't quite get the full program in. But, you know, from there, the crops um, performed reasonably well, happy enough with it, um, except for the uh, unfortunate circumstance of a severe hail event about three weeks ago across um, a significant portion of the crop. So that's been a bit of a setback late in the season. So it'll be mixed fortunes. We've started harvest in the last three days and, uh, you know, yield and quality data will start flowing shortly. So we'll know more soon. Back on the Queen Garnets, Liam, uh, relative niche variety. Could you just describe them for me? Well, they're a superfood. They're they're a plum. Um, They're in demand. Most of that crop um, has gone into China this year. There's 52 hectares, all on Nemegard. Yields have been good. Again, notwithstanding a trying spring and and summer with cloud cover and and, uh, lower temperatures and and lots of precipitation. We've produced about 16 tonne per hectare. Pack-out rates are being good, size has been good, and, and you know, the export market's been, been generous to us. So um, a pleasing result there. Um, it's really just about the fact that we're not stone fruit growers. There are some terrific family corporates that do a good job in that space. There's a couple of the large corporates that also are significantly invested and specialise in that space. It's um, left of centre for us, and we're not selling it because it's a bad asset. We're selling it because it's just not us. And they command quite a premium over other stone fruits? Yeah, well, they do, yes. Yeah, they, they do. There's a good margin there. Um, it's like all these things. It's um, driven by yield, driven by quality, and driven by cost management. So, no, there's a good margin in them. 
So 52 hectares of, of uh, Queen Garnets and the total holding, I think, 380 hectares. Have you got a, a price tag in mind? <laughs> well, they've been independently valued. The orchard itself has been valued somewhere around about $6 million. There is another 90 hectares of subsurface drip, which would be easily converted across to, to further orchard plantings. Uh, that's valued at somewhere around just shy of $2 million. But this is a rationalisation. Um, we're motivated to divest it. We'll listen to the market and form a view based on the offers that come forward. Uh, as well, GoFarm, I think, about 12 months ago listed its Sandmount aggregation. That's those that, that aggregation of farms in that Newmerca Cobram area. Uh, is that still on the market? No, that's been withdrawn from the market. Um, that was a point in time where you know, significant follow-on capital was required to take the next step in transformation and, and um, land use change there. Um, directors thought it appropriate to test the market and uh, inform the decision to be do we exit or do we commit more capital and, and carry on? We're just in the process now of um, finalising our plans around committing more capital and, and carrying on. So I think that's, a, from my perspective, a, um, a great outcome and good for the community there and, and good for our team. OK, so does that mean you'll be doing further development and, and planting more almond trees? Absolutely, yep. We've got about four buckets and two scrapers working at the moment. Um, the next stage of, of orchards that are going in the ground, some 230 hectares this winter, and uh, and then we'll scale it up from there. Interest rates are obvi- obviously on the rise and have all sorts of effects. What does it mean for the Go Farm business when, when you have substantial loan repayments uh, to have interest rates going up? Well, you're making an assumption that we have significant loan repayments, Angus. Not sure that assumption holds true. The short answer is no asset class is immune from the, the change in cost of capital, whether that be on the debt side or the equity side. And um, agriculture, like all assets, have had a dream run for the last three or four years as interest rates have gone to zero and discount rates have, have followed suit. Um, there's some unwinding of that. And so I'm very much of the view that Strong seasons won't continue. Commodity price, record commodity prices are unlikely to continue, and the cost of capital is higher. So, asset values um, have to ease. I think. I don't think there's any collapse, but um, you know, these record growth rates just not sustainable. So, and I, you know, to be honest, I think it's a good thing that it takes a breath and and consolidates. That's Liam Lennigan, who's managing director of Go Farm Australia, putting one farm on the market, taking another list or group of farms off it. We have a lot of markets to get through, so we better get moving. Let's go to Packenham Cattle. G'day, Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Warwick. Numbers decreased to 770. That's 300 fewer, with the usual buyers operating selectively in a dearer market for well-finished cattle. Quality was mixed with fewer prime lots and cows representing half of the sale. Trade cattle lifted 10 to 25 cents, while secondary young cattle eased to feeders and restockers. Grown steers and bullocks lifted 15 cents. Manufacturing steers gained 5. Cows sold 5 to 10 cents dearer, with processors loading cows for an estimated 5.40 to 6.32 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls lifted 5. Vealers sold from 3.54 to 4.80. Yearling trade steers 
432 to 472. The heifer portion, 350 to 448. Ground steers, 376 to 410. Bullocks, 366 to 392 after a top of 412. Heavy Friesian steers, 255 to 318. Crossbreds, 306 to 344. Most light and medium weight cows, 218 to 285. Heavyweights, 245 to 336. Heavy bulls, 278 to 326. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. To Wagga Cattle, good afternoon, Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. It was a mixed yarding of 2,700 cattle. Quality continues to be secondary, with very few cattle suited to the trade. Heavy steers and bullocks are in reasonable numbers, with feedlots and processors both operating across these categories. The market for feeder cattle was very solid, while domestic cattle prices fluctuated, which was quality-related. Trade steers were back 20 cents, 350 to 392. Feeder steers, medium weight, were on chain, 340 to 410. Lighter weights picked up 10, 360 to 453. Trade heifers, 320 to 386. Feeder heifers, medium weight, were back 5, 338 to 390. Lighter weights were firm, 352 to 390. Heavy steers gained 3 cents, 322 to 385. Bullocks were back 8, 336 to 380. Heavy cows were firm to a few cents easier, 285 to 310. And the middle run, 242 to 276. I'm Leanne Ducks, MLA. To Chris Agnew at Mortlake. Thanks, Warwick. Another large offering of 1,316 cattle yarded at Mortlake this week where the quality was mixed and generally plainer than last week's offering over most categories. All the regular processors were in attendance together with feeders that were active in a firm market over most categories with the exception of cows where the medium beef cows rose by 10 to 15 cents per kilo. All other classes of cows remained firm. However, some plainer cattle on offer in the trade offering were slightly softer in places. The pick of the veal made between 360 and 485 cents, yielding steers and heifers, 345 to 385 cents, and the grown steers and heifers topped out at 390 cents. Manufacturing steers, there was a lot more yarded this week, between 310 and 350 cents. Good beef cows, 300 cents to 325, the mediums, 270 to 310. Dairy cows, the well-covered dairy cows, made from 248 to 275 cents a kilo. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Kelly at Bendigo. Good afternoon. Smaller and mixed yarding of 10,500 lambs and just 4,800 sheep. The heaviest export lambs over 30 kilos from 236 to a market top of $268. The main run of crossbred trade lambs in the 22 to 24 kilo range, $172 to $200. Overall, most better quality in processing lambs remained in a ballpark range of $760 to $800 cents a kilo. Light lambs tended to be dearer. Decent store lambs showing some breed quality and frame from $110 to $150, but very small and secondary lambs, $9 to $50. Plain merino lambs had some tough results today. Heavy mutton averaged 10 to 15 cheaper. Big crossbred ewes, 94 to $130. A lot of trade sheep from 60 to 110. Lighter ewes, 24 to 50. Cost range for sheep, 250 to 380 cents a kilo. Jenny Kelly for MLA. That's it for the country hour. It's one o'clock.